What's up, humans? Welcome to the Daily Science Report. Today, we're just going to be going over some new science articles that dropped some pretty cool topics. We're going to start today off with an article about artificial photosynthesis. And this is from June 23rd, 2022, in the University of California, Riverside. And scientists have found a way to bypass the need for biological photosynthesis altogether and create food independent of sunlight by using artificial photosynthesis. The technology uses a two-step electrolytic process to convert carbon dioxide, electricity, and water into acetate. Food-producing organisms then consume acetate in the dark to grow. The hybrid organic-inorganic system could increase the conversion efficiency of sunlight into food up to 18 times more efficient for some foods. Photosynthesis has evolved in plants for millions of years to turn water, carbon dioxide, and the energy from sunlight into plant biomass in the foods we eat. <clears throat> this process, however, is very inefficient with only about 1% of the energy found in sunlight ending up in the plant. Scientists at UC Riverside and the University of Delaware have found a way to bypass the need for biological photosynthesis altogether and create food independent of sunlight by using artificial photosynthesis. The research published in Nature Food uses a two-step electrolytic process, electrocatalytic, I apologize, it's an electrocatalytic process to convert carbon dioxide, electricity, and water into acetate the form of the main component of vinegar. Food-producing organisms then consume acetate in the dark to grow. Combined with solar panels to generate the electricity to power the electrocatalysis, the electrocatalysis, electrocatalysis. Um, I apologize if I... Yeah, electrocatalytic process. And it is... They are using solar panels to generate the electricity that they use to power the electrocatalysis. Electrocatalysis. I apologize. It's a tough word. This hybrid organic inorganic system could increase the conversion efficiency of sunlight into food up to 18 times more efficient for some foods. With our approach, we sought to identify a new way of producing food that could break through the limits of normally imposed biological photosynthesis, said corresponding author Robert Jinkerson, a UC Riverside assistant professor of chemical and environmental engineering. In order to integrate all of the components of the system together, the output of the electrolyzer was optimized to support the growth of food-producing organisms. Electrolyzers are devices that use electricity to convert raw materials like carbon dioxide into useful molecules and products. The amount of acetate produced was increased while the amount of salt was decreased, resulting in the highest levels of acetate ever produced in an electrolyzer to date. Uh, using a state-of-the-art two-step tandem CO2 electroly uh, electrolysis setup developed in our laboratory, we were able to achieve a high selectivity towards acetate that cannot be accessed through conventional CO2 electrolysis routes. That was Feng Zhao at University of Delaware. Experiments showed that a wide range of food-producing organisms can be grown in the dark directly on the acetate-rich electrolyzer output, including green algae, yeast, fungal mycelium that produce mushrooms. Producing algae with this technology is approximately fourfold more energy efficient than growing it photosynthetically. 
uh, yeast production is about 18 fold more energy efficient than how it is typically cultivated using sugar extracted from corn. We are able to grow food producing organisms without any contributions from biological photosynthesis. Typically, these organisms are cultivated on sugars derived from plants or inputs derived from petroleum, which is a product of biological photosynthesis that took place millions of years ago. This technology is a more efficient method of turning solar energy into food as a as compared to food production that relies on biological photosynthesis. That was Elizabeth Han, a doctoral candidate in the Jinkerson lab and co-lead author of the study. The potential for employing this technology to grow crop plants was also investigated. Cow pea, tomato, tobacco, rice, canola, and green pea were all able to utilize carbon from acetate when cultivated in the dark. We found that a wide range of crops could take the acetate we provided and built it into the major molecular building blocks of an an organism needs to grow and thrive. With some breeding and engineering that we are currently working on, we might be able to grow crops with acetate as an extra energy source to boost crop yields. That was Marcus Harlan Dunway, a doctoral candidate in the Jinkerson lab and co-lead author of the study. By liberating agriculture from complete dependence on the sun, artificial photosynthesis opens the door to countless possibilities for growing food under the increasingly difficult conditions imposed by anthropogenic climate change. Drought, floods, and reduced land availability would be less of a threat to grow global food security if crops for humans and availables grew in less resource-intensive controlled environments. Crops could also be grown in cities and other areas currently unsuitable for agriculture and even provide food for future space explorers. Using artificial photosynthesis approaches to produce food could be a paradigm shift for how we feed people. By increasing the efficiency of food production, less land is needed, lessening the impact agriculture has on the environment. And for agriculture in non-traditional environments like outer space, the increased energy efficiency could help feed more crew members with less inputs. This approach to food production was submitted to NASA's Deep Space Food Challenge, where it was a phase one winner. The Deep Space Food Challenge is an international competition where prizes awarded to teams to create novel and game-changing food technologies that require minimal inputs and maximize safe, nutritious, and palatable food options for long-duration space missions. Imagine someday giant vessels growing tomato plants in the dark and on Mars. How much easier would that be for our future Martians? That was Martha Orozco Cardenas, the director of UC Riverside Plant Transformation Research Center. Andres Navarez Dengli and San Overa also contributed to the research. Research was supported by the Translational Research Institute for Space, Space Health through NASA, Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, the Link Foundation, the U.S. National Science Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Energy. The content of this publication is solely the responsibility of the authors. does not necessarily represent the official views of the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. <sighs> and I'm going to go ahead and drop a link to this study for you guys in the comments. Let me get this to y'all right now. Big drop right here. Boom. Y'all enjoy that. Unbelievable. That was absolutely mind-blowing. As a gardener, I don't know what the frick is going on here. Let me make sure I got a good link for you guys in that article. Um, let's see what's going on here. 
Let's try it like this. There we go. We got a better link here. Okay. Here's a fresh link. That's a good one from nature. Straight from nature herself. All right, guys. On to the next article. Let's see what else what we have in the headlines today. It's a lot to get through here. That was a fun one. Unbelievable. I have got to look into that some more myself as a gardener and community gardener. So I think next we're going to move on to jumping genes in octopus and human brains. Sounds pretty cool. This was published June 24th, 2022 by the Scuola Internationale Superiore di Studi Avanzati. Sounds Italian. The neutral and cognitive complexity of the octopus could originate from a molecular analogy with the human brain. According to a new study, the research shows the same jumping genes are active both in the human brain and in the brain of two species, octopus vulgaris, the common octopus, and octopus bimaculores, the Californian octopus. The octopus is an exceptional organism with an extremely complex brain and cognitive abilities that are unique among invertebrates, so much that in some ways it has more in common with vertebrates than in invertebrates. The neural and cognitive complexity of these animals could originate from a molecular analogy with the human brain. As discovered by a research paper recently published in BMC Biology and coordinated by Remo Sange, Sanji's from the CISA of Trieste and by Graziano Fiorito from Stazione Zoologica in Tondorn of Naples. <laughs> Called it. The research shows the same jumping genes are active both in the human brain and in the brain of two species of octopus vulgaris, the common octopus and octopus by Maculodes, the Californian octopus, a discovery that could help us understand the secret of intelligence of these fascinating organisms. Sequencing the human genome revealed as early as 2001 that over 45% of its composed of it, over 45% of the human genome is composed by sequences called transposons, so-called jumping genes that through molecular copy and paste or cut and paste mechanisms can move from one point or another of an individual's genome, shuffling or duplicating. In most cases, these mobile elements remain silent. They have no visible effects and have lost their ability to move. Some are inactive because they have over generations accumulated mutations. Other are intact, but blocked by cellular defense mechanisms. From an Evolutionary point of view, even these fragments and broken copies of transposons can still be useful as raw matter that evolution can sculpt. Among these mobile elements, the most relevant are those belonging to the so-called line, long, intersped, uh, long interspersed nuclear elements family, found a hundred copies in the human genome and still potentially active. It is traditionally through... <clears throat> It has been traditionally, though, that lines activity was just a vestige of the past, a remnant of the evolutionary process that involved these mobile elements. But in recent years, new, ev new evidence emerged showing that their activity is finally regulated in the brain. <clears throat> 
There are many scientists who believe that line transposons are associated with cognitive abilities such as learning and memory. They are particularly active in the hippocampus, the most important structure of our brain for the neural control of learning processes. The octopus genome, like ours, is rich in jumping genes, most of which are inactive, focusing on the transposons still capable of copy and paste. The researchers identified an element of line family parts of the brain crucial for cognitive abilities of these animals. The discovery, the result of a collaboration between Scuola Internationale Superiore di Studi Avantasi, Stazione Zoological Entondon, and Istituto Italiano di Tecnologica, Te- Tecnologia was made possible thanks to next generation sequencing technologies, which were used to analyze the molecular composition of the genes active in the nervous system of the octopus. The discovery of an element of the line family active in the brain of the two octopus species is very significant because it adds support to the idea that these elements have a specific function that goes beyond copy and paste. That was the director of computational genomics laboratory at CISA, who started working at this project when he was a researcher at Stazione Zoologica in Tondon of Naples. The study published in BMC Biology was carried out by an international team with more than 20 researchers from all over the world. I literally... I literally jumped on the chair when under the microscope I saw a very strong signal of activity. This element is the vertical lobe. The structure of the brain which in the octopus is the seat of learning and cognitive abilities, just like the hippocampus in humans, tells Giovanna Ponte from Staziono, Zoological Antondorn. According to Giuseppe Petrosino from Stazione Zoologica, I'm just going to shorten it because <laughs> it comes up a lot. And Stefano Gustinich from Istituto Italiano di Tecnologia, the similarity between man and octopus that shows the activity of a line element in the seat of cognitive abilities could be explained as a fascinating example of convergent evolution, a phenomenon for which two genetically distinct species in the same molecular process develops independently um, in response to similar needs. The brain of the octopus is functionally analogous in many of its characteristics to that of mammals, says Graziano Fiorito, Fiorito, a director of Department of Biology and Evolution of Marine Organisms at the Stazione Zoologica. For this reason, also, the identified line elements represents a very interesting candidate to study to improve our knowledge on the evolution of intelligence. So cool. So, it's like octopus have developed a similar uh, brain structure to mammals, even through a completely different evolutionary line. Pretty cool business. And it has to do with these weird genes that jump and move around our genome. They don't anymore, but they're in there from the past. And they could certainly mutate to do something in the future, which is a pretty cool con- uh, concept. And so I'm going to drop a link to that article for you guys right now from biomedicalcentral.com. Okay, let's, uh, I think I'll do one more. We'll go into uh, one more article about old stuff. We have a couple here today. 
There's one about aging secrets, secrets, uh, longevity in reptiles and amphibians. And there's another one about fire use eight, 800,000 years ago. So there, there were people or humanoids, uh, using fire as long as years ago, according to that one study. So I just wanted to mention that one real quick before we go into the aging secrets of reptiles and amphibians, which I think is pretty cool. So this is from Penn State, published June 23rd, 2022. An international team of 114 scientists report the most comprehensive study of aging and longevity to date of reptiles and amphibians worldwide. According to many findings, they document for the first time that turtles, crocodilians, and salamanders have particularly low aging rates and extended lifespans for their sizes. The team also finds that protective phenotypes, such as the hard shells of most, most turtle species, contribute to slower aging and, in some cases, even negligible aging or lack of biological aging. Um, at 190 years old, Jonathan, the Sekelis giant tortoise, recently made news for being the oldest living and land animal in the world. Although anecdotal evidence like this exists that some species of turtles and other uh, ectotherms or cold-blooded animals, ectotherms, I like it, live a long time. Evidence is spotty and mostly focused on animals living in zoos for a few individuals living in the wild or a few individuals living in the wild. Now, an international team of 114 scientists led by Penn State and Northeastern Illinois University reports the most comprehensive study of aging and longevity to date, comprising data collected in the wild from 107 populations of 77 species of reptiles and amphibians worldwide. Among their many findings, which they report today, the journal Science in the journal Science, the researchers documented for the first time that turtles, crocodilians, and salamanders have particularly low aging rates and extended lifespans for their sizes. The team also found that protective phenotypes such as the hard shells of most turtle species contribute to slower aging, and in some cases, even negligible aging or lack of biological aging. Anecdotal evidence exists that some reptiles and amphibians age slowly and have long lifespans, but now, no one has actually studied this on a large scale across numerous species in the wild. That was David Miller, senior author and associate professor of wildlife population ecology at Penn State. If we can understand what allows some animals to age more slowly, we can better understand aging in humans, and we can also inform conservation strategies for reptiles and amphibians many of which are threatened or endangered. In their study, researchers applied comparative uh, phylogenetic methods, which enable investigation of organisms' evolution to mark recapture data in which animals are captured, tagged, and released back into the wild and observed. Their goal is to analyze variation in ecotherm ectotherm aging and longevity in the wild compared to endotherms, which would be warm-blooded animals, the expo and explore previous hypotheses related to aging, including more including mode of body temperature regulation and presence or absence of protective physical traits. Miller explained the thermoregulatory mode hypothesis suggests that ectotherms, because they require external temperatures to regulate their body temperatures and therefore often have lower metabolisms, age more slowly than endotherms, which internally generate their own heat and have higher metabolisms. 
People tend to think, for example, that mice age quickly because they have high metabolisms, whereas turtles age slowly because they have low metabolisms. The team's findings, however, reveal that ectotherm's aging rates and lifespans range both well above and below the known aging rates for similar-sized endotherms, suggesting that the way an animal regulates its temperature, cold-blooded versus warm-blooded, is not necessarily indicative of its aging rate or lifespan. We didn't find support for the idea that lower metabolic rate means ectotherms are aging slower. That was Miller. And he says the relationship was only true for turtles, which suggests that turtles are unique among ectotherms. The protective phenotypes hypothesis suggests that animals with physical or chemical traits that confer protection, such as armor, spines, shell, or venom, have slower aging and greater longevity. The team documented that these protective traits do indeed enable animals to age more slowly. In the case of physical protection, live much longer for their size than those without protective phenotypes. It could be their altered morphology with hard shells provides protection and has contributed to the evolution of their life histories, including negligible aging or lack of demographic aging and exceptional and exceptional longevity, said Anne Bronikowski, Bronikowski, a co-senior author and professor of integrative biology at Michigan State. Beth Rank, first author, assistant professor of biology, Northeastern Illinois University, further explained that these various protective mechanisms can reduce animals' mortality rates because they're not getting eaten by other animals, thus they're more likely to live longer. That exerts pressure to age more slowly. We found the biggest support for the protective phenotype hypothesis in turtles. Again, this demonstrates that turtles, turtles as a group are unique. Interestingly, the team observed negligible aging in at least one species in each of the ectotherm groups, including frogs and toads, crocodilians and turtles. Sounds dramatic to say that they don't age at all, but basically their likelihood of dying does not change with age once they are past reproduction said Rink. Uh, Miller added, negligible aging means that if an animal's chance of dying is near 1% at age 10, if it is alive at 100 years, its chance of dying is still 1%. By contrast, in adult females in the U.S., the risk of dying in a year is about 1 in 2,500 at age 10 and 1 in 24 at age 80 when a species exhibits negligible synthesis, uh, senescence uh, deterioration. Aging just doesn't happen. Rink noted that the team's novel study was only possible because of the contributions of a large number of collaborators from across the world, studying a wide variety of species. Being able to bring these authors together, who have all done years and years of work studying their individual species, is what made it possible for us to get these more reliable estimates of aging rate and longevity that are based on population data instead of just individual animals. Um, Bronikowski, uh, Bronikowski, Bronikowski added, understanding the comparative landscape of aging across animals can reveal flexible traits that may prove worthy targets for biomedical study related to human aging. For a list of authors and their affiliations, please see the published manuscripts in science. The National Institutes of Health supported this research, and I'm going to drop you guys a link right now. Make sure it's a good link. And here you go. There's all three links. And that's almost a 30-minute podcast. What's up, Nivik? I think you just jumped in for the very end here. I just wrapped up a 
Daily Science Report. If there are any science topics you would like me to focus on or cover, I can certainly do a deep dive on any subject you guys are interested in at all. So I'll even go ahead and give you guys a list of subjects right now, kind of give you an idea of what you can pull from. Um, let's see. Just an idea of the kinds of things we can go with, like biology, um, astrology or astronomy. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a scientific sin right there, I think. But if you guys are interested in, in astrology, like a scientific, uh, perspective of astrology, we could certainly do a dive on that. Um, so, you know, there's health technology, the environment, society, and then there's all kinds of weird, crazy stuff like human quirks, odd creatures, bizarre things, you know, weird things we find in, the, um, in health. You know, there's health and medicine, the mind, uh, health, uh, I guess uh, you can say uh, like uh, well-being or healthy living, um, general health, like healthy eating. We can talk about matter and energy, space and time, computers and math. Uh, chemistry, electronics, fossil fuels, nanotechnology, physics, quantum physics, solar energy, dark matter, extrasolar planets, Mars, the moon, hacking mathematics, quantum computers, robotics, video games. You guys name it. We got it going on. As far as the environment goes, we got plants, animals, earth and climate, fossils and ruins, ancient civilizations, agriculture and food, dinosaurs. I love talking. I already have a dinosaur episode out there. So um, really anything y'all are interested in at all, you can drop uh, a, uh, a suggestion in the comments and I will totally make an episode on that like tonight or tomorrow. So uh, I'll take a caller from a call from Nivik. What's up, Nivik? How's it going, my dude? I'm fine. Thanks. I, I like what you're doing. I, I find it interesting. I think it's more needed now than ever because a lot of people don't know what the fuck to believe, you know? And uh, science, it's important because um, I think being about uh, facts and reasoning, you know what I mean? Just just have, having that, it... it, 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 it it could be revolutionary, right? If everybody is more grounded to reality and science is about that, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, how I, how I see things. And, um, I think like more scientific things are discussed and people are interested in, I think that would be good for society. I, I I don't mean to like, I don't, I, I'm not like trying to like be all preachy or anything, but oh, I appreciate it, man. Um, and you're totally right. Like I learn so much every time I do one of these episodes. Um, it blows my mind and just going over the vocabulary words, like just learning new words and terms and just hearing the process that scientists go through these kind of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Scientific really, method. Yeah, scientific method, exploring it. Yeah, such a good learning tool. Just going over some of these articles that are being published uh, today. And I'll go over any article at any time. These, these are just some of the new articles I'm going over today. We're doing some of the news. But if there's some old studies y'all are interested in, um, I'd be happy to go over those as well. 
And what would you like to hear about, Nivik? Like, what kind of topic would you specifically? That was like to interesting. Hear about? I just got in here. I don't. I didn't hear all of it, but what you? I was hearing you talk about agent, and it sounds interesting. And the whole process of agent. I don't know if it is uh, environmental, and how you eat, and the stresses of the environment, or it's just mostly genetic. You just program to a certain point, you know. Um, it, and what you're talking about, animals, animals just naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Your genetics, your phenotype plays a role in um, your biological age. And then also your environment, <clears throat> of course, plays a huge role in, in biological age. You know, there's some children who exhibit Alzheimer-like symptoms in, at very young ages because of toxic work environments. They're forced to work at young ages. They're exposed to toxic chemicals. Yeah, and, and they're not aware of it. Some people, they're not really aware that their lifestyle is aging them more rapidly. And it's not like you can tell, you know what I mean? But before you know it, when you're 20, you look like you're 50, right? Yeah, it happens. Um, it absolutely yeah. is a thing. Some people don't like, aren't aware of it and don't think it's a thing. And they just live their life carelessly and they don't yeah. understand. That's a rapid aging process is what they're doing. Yeah. Fortunately enough, it can be reversed in like the most incredible ways. Like my mom worked very hard at a office job for years. She was in front of an office all day, every day for years on end. And she became very unhealthy and she was, she, she's aging very quickly. You know, it, it literally yeah. aged her. And, um, when she retired and went on like a extended vacation in Cozumel and started eating a bunch of organic food, she literally aged 10 years in reverse. Like she reversed her age, like her biological age literally reversed 10 years. It's amazing. I still can't believe how good she's doing afterwards after getting out of there. So yeah, there is hope for everyone. There's a lot to lot to learn. And yeah, you're getting lost in years when you live a harsh life. You have to be aware of that. You're taking, uh, you're, you're accelerating your aging process. And then mm-hmm. and it's important to know how to, what to eat, and it's even how to eat. I know that sounds silly, but I mean, like. Oh, no, you, food intelligence is a great new term that I learned the other day. Food intelligence, you know, how much you know about food, because, like, Food is a very yeah. high science. It is an Be incredibly with the high food science. and your body, and yeah. and um, knowing the time to eat, um, yes. what to eat. Yeah. Because I mean, like, it's you. It, you certain foods what, can clear up your to gut. Yeah, yeah. What not? People to don't understand. Your body as well is a huge threat these days. Yeah, and people don't about understand to their, their gut health. It, 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 it starts from the minute you put the food in your mouth and um, your gut health and, like, what type of food you eat and where it could – in the uh, importance of fiber. It helps to move uh, the digestion along properly. And probiotics, prebiotics, uh, it, it, it healthy, healthy, uh, 
probiotics in your system override overriding the, the the bad ones and and yeah, there's actually a, a link, a very strong link between our gut health and our mm-hmm. brain health. If you have a leaky gut barrier, yeah, um, that can lead yeah. to a leaky blood brain barrier. And then that in turn allows toxins from the environment into our Bingo. brain, which cause Alzheimer's. <laughs> a lot of negative cascading effects happen when you don't yeah. really take care of your gut because it causes inflammation. A lot of, yeah. uh, like uh, most of your, what do you call it? Um, your lymph nodes that, that uh, of of dealing with bacteria yeah. and virus, yeah. you know it, that 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 like sixty percent of your immune systems like in your gut, and if you take care of your gut, that means you can have your immune system focusing on other priorities. There's less uh, opportunistic uh, illnesses yeah. like and cancer infections. Yeah. yeah, and some cool. folks aren't really quite aware of that, and I, I yeah. know, I'm getting to understand it more and more, and 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 and, and I kind of have like a bit of a a a, a routine uh, when it comes to eating. Like I try to have decent amount of fluid. I try to have the fruits and vegetables, and that moves quicker and digests differently in your body and um some folks are not really aware of so i mean like fruit will go through your body in a half an hour to an hour and and, um what do you call it uh oats would be two hours grains and and meats would be four to six so there's 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 um I try to I try to kind of have like a, a a timing when I eat. So when I get up, I'll drink water. That's gone in a minute, and then I'll have my fruits and vegetables. That'll be like a half hour, and then I'll have my uh uh I'll have I'll have a meal meat meat yeah. chicken beef that that will take longer the thing about it is the first the first the first thing that you the first like the fruits and vegetables that you have that's fight that has fiber and um and it's pre and probiotics and it'll move it'll move along the system quicker yeah and they'll catch the body and the brain yeah and what what happens is that it will it'll it'll help i i didn't know the importance of fiber but it helps move the digestive digestion process along in clearing and eliminate parasites. You can eliminate parasites yeah. like that, which are also good for your brain. So you don't and, have a buildup uh, of fecal been... matter in your gut, which is not yes. good because it, this, your shit goes into your bloodstream pretty much. And you don't want yeah. to, to tear down of your, 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 your intestine and walls and inflammation because you get that going because that will get, that will get absorbed. And, uh, yeah, yes, well, um, distilled water is my health secret when it comes to water. I like distilled water a lot, but I will definitely make a longevity episode uh, specifically for you, and I'll make sure you get a good heads up on that. And I we'll do a gluten. whole episode on health and longevity if you're interested in that. I, and one thing I understand about gluten, uh, the flour. Uh, but hey, it, I, I got to get to Andrew real quick, uh, okay. just, to let, just to let Andrew in real quick, and then uh, I'll, I'll let you come back in if that sounds cool. How about That's that? Cool. All right, let's 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 just get Andrew in on this uh, gut conversation. Um, what's up, Drew? Hey, Brady, how's it going? 
Doing good. Hey, so I uh, I have a I'm like three and a half years um, into a, a fairly acute gut issue. Um, people call it IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Actually, have no, you not- tried turkey tail mushrooms? Huh? Have you tried turkey tail mushrooms? I can't really eat mushrooms anymore. Uh, um, well, I, I, turkey, you make a tea from the turkey tail mushrooms. What you want is the polysaccharides from turkey tail mushrooms, um, well, which so, are the complex sugars. Um, yeah, so, you make so the, that's, that's actually my issue. Like when you have IBS, you can't really process complex sugars. Uh, rather uh, than breaking them down properly, um, your your gut biome, your microbiome, the various bacteria that live in your intestines and in your uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, microbiome, yeah. Appendix. Microbiome. Um, the, oh, you have an, Im- okay. you have an imbalance in the in the colonies of bacteria. So rather than uh, continuing to aid in the digestion process, a number of different sugars, including complex sugars, but also some smaller chains, um, they actually ferment instead of digesting properly. There's a, and so it creates like a whole bunch of issues, but what I've actually just recently learned is that, uh, so I also have, um, what do you call it? Celiacs. Uh, so that's an intolerance uh, oh, to wow. gluten and other things. Yeah, and my you mom, have the my, real, you have the real allergy to, to gluten. You have a very serious allergy to gluten. Um, yeah, it's, it, the, the, what I've found with all of the things that I can't really eat is that it, it's kind of progressive. So if I'm eating well and I'm avoiding the things that kind of fuck me up for a few weeks, then I have a little bit of leeway. And so it kind of leads to bad habits in my case where I'll say, oh man, I really want a fucking bon me or something and I'll eat a sandwich. Um, cause I've been doing good for weeks and it doesn't really hurt me so much. And then if I, if I keep eating things day after day or every couple of days that, um, that cause me problems, it, the, the results get progressively worse. But, but about celiacs, my, my mom also has celiacs and, um, it, she's had it in a kind of mild form most of her life. And so does her twin sister. And then later in life, it became more acute and they, they both cut out gluten and a couple other things over the past multiple years. Um, but I think I had celiacs earlier on than my mom and I didn't really know that. And so without addressing that, so celiacs is a problem with the, the, uh, the small intestine, which is the lower one, meaning that food passes through it after your large intestine. IBS is kind of a problem with the large intestine predominantly. Um, and I've been reading recently that o- a little over one third of people who have celiacs also develop IBS. Um, so I think that for sure, the kind of overemphasis on grains, especially wheat, um, in our diets is, is a real problem. Like I don't have any of the same problems when I'm eating a lot of corn, which is a bigger, a much bigger proportion of my diet now that I'm living in Mexico. And this is also like good corn. This isn't the, um, kind of nutrient poor GMO corn. That's just the sweet corn that's mass produced in the U S this is like the real shit that actually has nutrients and it's kind of meaty. Um, but I, 
I, I kind of want to link this all back to like the, the U S healthcare system. It's not really a healthcare system. It's like an industry. Um, in, so I, I went to the university of Washington, uh, from 2014 to 2019. I still have to finish up a couple of classes for the bachelors, but don't tell anyone. Um, but in my first year there, there was a series of protests down on the kind of lower side of the campus. It's a really big campus. There's a lot of different schools. And the University of Washington is the second most well-funded public university in the country, just beyond, just behind Johns Hopkins. And by that, I mean, it receives the second largest amount of research dollars uh, from federal grants for education. And there's a lot of engineering and computer science stuff that goes on there that takes up a lot of it. But there's also a large medical school and healthcare facilities there. And in my freshman year, the the schools to do underground pharmaceutical testing facility. And I've actually been inside of it a couple of times for some work that I was doing with Crows. But um, you know, in going in there and talking to a couple of people who had been through um, I saw that they were actually doing a lot of, um, there, I mean, it's predominantly pharmaceutical testing. So I was going in there to test crows for like behavioral experiments. Um, but a lot of it is these larger laboratories. It's a very high security facility. So I wasn't able to like visit any of them, but from talking to some of the other people coming in and out of there over the time that I was there, they're, you know, like doing gene editing on rats and mice to have them grow a human organ on the outside of their body uh, and test the, uh, you know, a, a variety of medicines on it or without the freakier that that's, that's not the majority of the experiments, but that's some of the freakier ones, but they're spending all of this money on developing pharmaceuticals that are largely redundant. I mean, there's already a lot of pharmaceuticals that kind of get replicated with just enough of a change in the chemical structure that it can be patented um, by a different drug company. Um, or, you know, if one of the pharmaceuticals has passed out of the patent protection and into the public domain, they'll just make another one that's slightly different that they can then price gouge on again. And they're not addressing a lot of the the root issues of chronic illnesses. Um, you know, the, the fact that we've got uh, a growing amount of residual um, farm, not farm schools, pesticides and herbicides on all of our produce, um, that has to be affecting us in, in consuming all of that. And our body is going to grow, uh, weary of consuming these relatively small, but in, in kind of consistent, uh, consumption, we're going to develop a, a response to these. And this, this is actually like, the main reason that GMO um, genetically modified organisms, but the, the main reason that crops are genetically modified, there's a couple, I think there's kind of two equally important reasons. One of them is so that they can be patented and it can be the sole property of a company like Bayer, which now owns Monsanto. Um, Bayer is a German company, but they, they bought out Monsanto a few years ago, but they're, they're no better. They're, they're just as fucked up as Monsanto ever was. Um, so they can, they can own 
the genetic code of these plants. And then if, um, the, you know, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar, all, all into- the whole entire five of us are probably somewhat familiar with, uh, Monsanto's kind of fucked up practices where they'll, um, they'll sue any farmer who has like a Monsanto patented soya bean or anything that happens to grow in their fields and they cross pollinate. Obviously that's how flowering plants reproduce is they pollinate and the main vectors of pollination are wind and, and flying pollinators, whether they be insects or birds or bats occasionally. And so without any fault of their own, these farmers are losing their entire livelihood. So that that's one reason to pursue genetic modification of crops. But the other one is to make them resistant to uh, herbicides and pesticides. Uh, the way that we, the way that we do um, monocrop agriculture farming in the United States is, is heavily dependent on um, pesticides and herbicides I'm not sure that it's a hundred percent dependent on those for success, but the, just the model that we, that we use for farming dictates that there can be nothing else growing with these other plants, even though there are often, um, you know, very positive symbiotic relationships between plants growing near each other, they try to keep them away. And so I don't know that there's a connection for sure between pesticides and herbicides consuming those and developing a condition like celiacs, um, where you, you're, having an intolerance to uh, wheat or gluten. Now, gluten in and of itself is a complex enough molecule that, you know, basically the the increased prevalence of gluten in wheat from selective breeding over the past couple centuries, that could be an explanation in and of itself. But the point I'm getting at is we're wasting all this money on pharmaceutical research on GMO research that's not actually doing anything to improve public health. What it's doing is it's increasing the profits of an industry for um, marketing healthcare products rather than improving public health. Um, And I think that like the diet modifications you guys were talking about, um, like Nivek was talking about, not just what to eat, but how much to vary your diet to make sure that you're not eating like late at night. And so your gut can still process those, uh, those foods without, um, maybe, maybe, uh, making a poor biological decision about where to store the fats or energy or something. So there's, there's all sorts of things that we could be doing to improve our health really dramatically without having to, you know, even pay a lot of money, but that's just not the way the system works. Um, and, uh, shit. I had one other point there, but anyways, I said a lot, so I don't know what y'all think of that, but I've, I've been interested to find out that probably having celiacs is what eventually, and not, not taking care of it is probably what eventually led me to have IBS. There are things I can do to treat it. Like I could do a, a fecal transplant where somebody who has a really healthy gut can basically lend me some shit and I'll make a, a healthier bacterial colony from their, from their gut biome and try to cleanse mine and replace it. But also there's other things. A lot of promise. Yeah. It's actually a really promising area of medicine or um, you can call that medicine. Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it's very promising. Um, uh, I was going to, I let you know that, uh, I dropped a couple links down in the comments for you. Oh, I was wrong about, 
tur- how turkey tail works, but it is beneficial for IBS, not for necessarily for the polysaccharides, but um, for a couple other reasons that I, I, I link that are linked in the first article. And then the second article is all about uh, how how good oyster mushrooms are for IBS. So have you tried either turkey tail or oyster mushrooms to kind of combat your IBS yet? Um, I haven't made a tea out of them like you were talking about, uh, but I do have a number of different things that really help out with my IBS. Um, so first of all, I make a lot of tea out of yarrow. Yarrow, there's varieties nice. of yarrow kind of all over the place, but that's been very helpful. Cool. Also down here in Mexico, there's a drink called pulque, which has been mm-hmm. extremely extremely helpful pulque is really i'll I'll drop another link about it in the chat um but basically it's like a um it's made from the kind of the largest relative of the agave family it's just a really gigantic succulent you can actually like climb on the the fronds or the leaves i don't really call them the limbs of this plant and when they get to be about 12 to 15 years old um they they flower earlier than that, but they they just make this really gigantic flowering stalk that's the size of a tree. And um, to make pulque, it's different than making tequila or mezcal. Um, it's it's a very different drink. To make pulque, you cut out the flowering stalk once the maguey has um, grown to be about twelve or fifteen years old, and then it secretes this kind of um, nectar that ideally for the plant would heal the wound that you've made by cutting out the flowering stalk. But instead uh, you collect that stuff and you, you can drink it and it already comes intact with this really vibrant microbiological community of bacteria and fungi. And some of them have been shown to help fight cancer, but they also have a really drastic uh, and positive effect on the gut biome. Um, so basically they they grow all over the place here. So I could just go like up onto the hillside, even though I live in a city, there's like, I'm pretty high up in the mountains. And so these other hills or little peaks every so often, people don't tend to like build houses on them. So I could just go like a couple miles from where I live, um, take care of them. I the way I've been talking about and have it for free, but that's a lot of work. So I, I'd just rather buy it from someone who does that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that have shown promise to help ameliorate the symptoms of IBS. But as far as curing it, the only thing I've really seen with heavy promise is that uh, fecal transplant, or I think a better word for it would be like a microbiomial transplant. Uh, basically, I try to clear out as much of the bacteria in my own gut as yeah, possible. Probiotic transplant. Probiotic transplant. Yeah, like a probiotic transplant. I think. Sounds better than a shit transplant. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's the other thing I was going to say about the the link between the gut health and and mental health. Um, It's not necessarily just the fact that it could be um, weakening your kind of brains and your nervous system's defenses. What the actual right? It's not just that. It's the microbes themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah, like the root of your of your nervous system, the the root of all of your systems to some level is in your gut. You're you're intaking nutrients and and pulling them apart and and recreating other useful molecules for your body uh, or some trace nutrients you just use as is. 
but with your um, with your gut, the bacteria in your gut, not just in your stomach, but lower in your gut, actually produce either precursors or fully formed molecules that are neurotransmitters. So yes. in your in your synapses, in your in your brain, in your in between your nerves, in your nervous system, to Things send like dopamine and serotonin that uh, affect our mood, and that's a yeah. big reason why so many people are so depressed right now because they're eating so much glyphosate that their uh, microbiome is not able to produce enough serotonin or dopamine, you know? Yeah, uh, that's that's another good point you bring up, though. I think for sure it is heavily linked to diet, the depression. But I also think, like, we often get caught up searching. I'm not saying you do this personally, but, like, very often the narrative in the U.S. around depression is that it's a solely chemical or biological imbalance, Whereas there's a lot to actually be depressed about if you're a conscious being and you're thinking about the the state of the future and what are your prospects in life for you or your family or your community. Um, they're not so good unless you're extremely wealthy in the United States. Um, now, the wealthy have their other issues that can cause depression or anxiety, anything from trauma to neglect but the point being that i think we we definitely overlook diet but we also definitely overlook just like material reality as to why someone would be depressed and i i i think the last thing you should do it should be a complete last resort to take any kind of um ssri i i would just recommend against it i I have too many friends who have had a really serious trouble um, getting off of SSRIs and some who have committed suicide or had other really serious health effects from, uh, from using or from cessating, um, these, these, uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. They're just no, no good. Agreed. And they barely beat placebo. I don't know how they got this passed through the FDA, but these, uh, SSRIs, they can just barely, barely beat placebo and i would challenge someone to repeat those um those results in a truly independent setting well that's Um, that's why um, prozac that's why prozac is the most prescribed ssri it's the it's the ssri that that is reported to have the best track record the only reason it is reported to have the best track record is because it's been used the longest it's been prescribed to by far the most people so it has the most success stories, but still, if you look at the the ultimate spread of the statistics of the use of Prozac and any other SSRI, in the best case scenario, they still yes, like as a percentage, barely uh, exceed the positive results of a placebo, basically meaning you know a sugar pill. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think that what your comment about the you know how did they even get past the FDA? Well, that's that's how the FDA works, though. Is the FDA is a marketing agency for pharmaceuticals um to get usda organic certification um there are some real crock of shit definitely not organic farms in the u.s and in europe that are sold into the u.s that get this organic certification just because it's a very expensive qualification you basically purchase but i know local farms and um local producers of of you know everything from produce to honey um, who are absolutely organic if you actually care about what's the what you know what's the definition of organic but they didn't have the money to pay the fee or even if they did scrape together the money to pay the the fee sometimes they're just not 
um, put through because it's a weird bureaucracy. And that's the USDA that's different yeah. than the FDA. But the, my point is they operate beautiful in a similar point. way. Yeah, beautiful point. The arugula that grows in my front yard is not certified by anyone, but it is the best, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's no comparison. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, I think you mentioned Prozac is actually a uh, fluoxetine, which is like a fluoride. It's based on a fluoride, which is a highly toxic chemical, you know, compound. It tend to be, of course, it is a type of fluoride. So they all have different levels of toxicity. Um, well, my understanding but, is fluorine, the atom fluorine is the most electronegative atom on the periodic table. Um, interesting. Both electronegative and highly electropositive atoms. They basically have a really high propensity to to bond or interact with other yeah. atoms. So yeah. they're not stable. Yeah. Like gold or platinum are a very stable um, atom, very stable metal. That's why they don't yeah. tarnish. Um, yeah. But silver is slightly less stable. There's a little bit more going on on the outer levels of the atomic structure of silver. Um, so mm-hmm. that's why that's why it tarnishes because it's reacting with the air and with water. Um, and fluorine is the really like um, extreme example of that, where the just the the atom fluorine uh, will it will bond with anything that has a slightly positive charge, even if it's not a stable uh, molecule that's formed. It it has a high propensity to bond. Um, so yeah, fluoride. It, that that's that's why it's effective. That reacting with alcohol and any other drugs you're taking. Yeah. Huh. That, that means reacting in, in crazy ways with alcohol and, and becoming even more toxic with alcohol and a lot of other drugs that people take and even foods that people take. Yeah, I think um, I think well, well, first I'll comment as to why why they use fluoride salts as clean cleansers for water is because because of the properties of fluorine, um, they'll bond with and kill all kinds of bacteria and parasites in the water. So from that standpoint, they're effective. But I do think I do think it's it's annoying that people just dismiss the possibility that it could be having a negative effect on our health or our mental health in some way. Having that in the water, um, I think that um, I see Shane's in here. We we did a episode on kind of green capitalism uh, a few weeks ago that I thought was interesting. I I didn't quite get out some of the the pre-written arguments that I wanted to get into, but I, I think we still had a great conversation and Allison brought up the point cause we were talking about, um, water collection, taxes on water, um, water purification systems. And I brought up the point that I, you know, maybe a more decentralized water collection and filtration, um, system would be good in some ways. Yeah. Allison made the point, which I think is a good point that, the the solution to a lot of problems um, should and can include government and that, you know, we shouldn't put it on people's individual shoulders to just build their own system because maybe they don't have – like, for instance, I don't have the time to go and make pulque all the time, but I still need to drink yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that th- there can definitely be both. And if you have a more decentralized system that's working more off of rain collection, it's taking stress off of the – aquifers that are in the lakes that are constantly being drained. I don't know if you all have seen Lake Mead is a artificial lake in, in Nevada that, that feeds uh, Las Vegas and Los Angeles uh, freshwater. It's draining at an astonishingly fast rate because of the use and because of the temperature. Um, 
those aren't great examples in those regions because they're pretty arid, but there's a lot of places where, especially like Ireland, where Shane's from or where I am in Mexico, where there's a lot of rainwater that can be used, but instead we're depleting aquifers and we're building these really large systems where the only like time, the only sensible way to manage the time and energy to actually like filter the water and make it drinkable would be to use something like fluoride salts, where if it were more, decentralized system you could be distilling more of it you could be um using like uh sequence filters with carbon and sand and clay and things to to filter the water without having to use these other chemicals that are sort of a necessity of a really large scale um water system and and not only is is does fluoride salts have problems but when they replace it like my my grandma lives in uh bremerton in washington it's over to the west across the the sound from Seattle and that county over there Kitsap County had you know for years running some of the best water in the United States um, and then they switched some of the the system over to these chlorine uh, it's like a, it's a liquid chlorine solution instead of fluoride salts and it's even more noticeable the the kind of chlorine fluoride taste and the smell and within like uh, six months of switching over to that chemical, both of her cats died and they don't drink the tap water anymore. Whereas it was very Holy nice shit. just recently. Um, so anyways, That's fucking terrifying. <laughs> oh <my God>. yeah. <laughs> and so I just pulled this up and I just like to mention that uh, there's a lot of European countries that have completely rejected water fluoridation, including Austria, Belgium, Finland, France, Germany, Hungary, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Northern Ireland, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Scotland, Iceland, and Italy. So all of these guys managed to make it happen without the fluoride. So I, I know there are other methods of, uh, I guess, sterilizing our water outside of fluoride. I'd be totally interested in those. Even kinetic methods, you know, where we're like literally like grinding or, or blending any potential <laughs> biological things that might be in there. But um, yeah, I think distilling your water is like the number one way to go. Uh, if you take a dead car battery and pour distilled water into it, you can regain some charge like that. And the exact same thing I speculate is going on within our human bodies in our stomach acid. And I know when I drink distilled water, it's just like, the fountain of youth is how I would describe it. It's like holy water. It literally is holy water. It's completely as in that it is completely water and nothing else. So big shouts out to distilled water and rainwater. <laughs> a good way to collect rainwater for your garden is to just have mulch piles. Uh, a big old rain barrel is not necessarily, it's good for your garden to have a rain barrel, um, but a really good, uh, efficient way to store rainwater in your garden is just by using lots of mulch. Um, it's a fun way to do that. Save you a little bit of money and headache. Um, but yeah, that was a really cool conversation. Uh, drew a lot of really good. I think that's my favorite conversation we've had so far in here. Um, and, um, yeah, I think I'm going to wrap it up, but I'll let uh, Andrew, if you want to come in and, uh, add anything before I wrap up. Yeah. Uh, it was just really quick. I was, I was scouring my, I have like, 70 windows open in my web browser. I'm just looking for the one that has the uh, the paper on the benefits of pulque to your gut biome. 
Might be a little bit of a moot point if you don't live nearby, but you're down in Texas. I mean, it's possible people grow gays down there. I'm not sure, but we we might call them century plants here in Texas. Um, Sounds like you might be describing what we call a century plant, which is similar to an agave, really big stalk comes out. And if what you're saying is true, I mean, if I can do this with a century plant, uh, I'm all over it, man. (laughs) I'm an excited dude. Very excited about the possibility of making some of this drink. Let's, uh, we lost Andrew, but let him come back in here. All right. So what'd you find? Do you copy? Andrew, do you copy? Do a mic check. Looks like we might be having some technical issues. Yaro T benefits as well. The IBS. Yeah. Andrew, uh, looks like you're having some microphone issues. Just, um, maybe if you can drop a link to that cool drink in the comments, that'd be nice. Nivik is saying, try to fight free radical damage from toxins and inflammations towards eating anti-inflammatory and foods that fight free radicals that increase the risk of cancer. Or the immune, cell, immune system also fights cancer cells. That's a problem when it gets out of hand. And I actually have a goth garden theme going on right now. I'm growing lots of plants that are rich in anthocyanins, which are those dark purple antioxidants that are so good for you. And so I have a a goth anthocyanin themed garden right now. It's pretty cool. You can follow that group on goth garden, I think on Facebook <laughs> and Andrew, you want to do a mic check? Fill us in on what you might've found. Hey, yeah, sorry. My app crashed. And sometimes that happens when I go from the chat back to the, the main window of the call. Um, yeah, it's a little buggy, but, I, but it still works great. I still love this. I can't wait until we can post pictures and do video podcasts. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Well, I, I like it in this format, though, because it can just run off of phone data. Like you mentioned yesterday, you're running from 2G's because yeah. it's they're kind of running running the app over actual like um, like the. I, I, I guess maybe I don't actually know what I'm talking about, but I think b- because of the reason, I, I think because it can run so well off of low, uh, low cell service, it seems to me that they're they're running it off of the non-data part of cell service rather than the the high bandwidth data side of it. It's just audio. Uh-huh. Yeah, it works great. Um, like I'm, I'm honestly very impressed. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. I. I'm giving them a lot of uh, a lot of slack on the uh, the what do you call it? Um, Working the bugs out, know. yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're getting they're, the kinks they're figured updates. out. They're, they're making updates as time goes on, and I, I see that work, man. I, I appreciate you calling, calling your you rock. But I see you dropped that that link to the pulque. So uh, yeah, I just dropped another one. On the pulque before we close. Um. Yeah, so it's a it's a you know it's a pre-Hispanic or pre-Columbian uh, staple of the area. Um, the, so I live in Toluca. It's like the highest city in Mexico. It's up in this big valley up in the mountains, and it, the whole um, you know a lot of different places have names regarding pulque all over the place. Pulque is also like the Spanish name. I can't remember. There's names for it in Otomi and Nahuatl, but that I don't really know what they are. But it's like to make to make tequila or mezcal, for instance, you basically like blend up the the fronds of the, you know, the leaves or whatever. I don't know what to call them if it's a succulent, the lobes of the plant. And then you ferment that and you you kind of um, 
you ferment it long enough and then you can uh, distill it to become very strong. Pulque, you don't have to ferment uh, with anything else in it. You don't have to do any special process. You don't have to add any sugar. It's literally like the the nectar or they call it like the honey water, agua miel, uh, out of the, the center where you cut out the stalk. You just go in there, suck it all out with a tube into a bucket, and it's good to go already. It's already mildly alcoholic as soon as it kind of secretes out of the plant when you cut out the stalk. And then as it just sits there, it ferments itself very rapidly. So there's already sugars and things for it to be uh, fermenting with the microbial and, you know, with the fungi and bacteria in there. And it gets strong really quick. It gets strong to the point where if you leave it for like three, four days, you're going to be like pretty drunk if you just have a glass. (laughs) And um, I think it still has very good benefits for you. And there's similar, there's similarities to tequila and mezcal. I don't know if you've, heard people kind of jokingly say that like tequila and mezcal are are probiotic they they kind of are but because they're they're more heavily processed and they don't i don't i don't know but i don't think you can make a an identical drink out of if you cut the flower stock out of uh, a different agave for tequila or mezcal i don't think you can make um something just like pulque but anyways it's a very interesting uh, tasting drink it's like it's kind of like if you mixed beer with um, kombucha. It has that kind of kombucha funky uh, nice. taste to it, but it's not quite like, like vinegar kombucha. like kombucha. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, <laughs> my wife really doesn't like pulque. Like she won't. She'll like <laughs> gag if I put it near her. But uh, her grandma does, and I do. So it's kind of hit, hit or miss, person cool. to person. If you like yeah. kind of you know whatever sauerkraut, kombucha, I other do. kinds of fermented kimchi or whatever you'll probably like pulque um the only other place i've heard of it being is uh australia i guess some people brought over some agaves to grow in australia my my buddy's from australia and he told me that uh a friend of his is all crazy about it and there's like one bar near sydney that has pulque but other than that it's it's definitely from mexico it's a very traditional drink amongst the indigenous people here it's super good for you so anyways, I posted a couple links you can read about. I also posted a link to Yarrow. Chances are wherever you live in the world, Yarrow grows there. My my last name is a uh, kind of German name. It's uh Grüter and that's how you say it all traditional. People just say Gruter or Greeter. But like Grüt is a old school brew that was used without uh using wheat and without using hops. Um back in even before the the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, people were brewing this way. And and basically when the Catholic Church under Charlemagne began to take over a lot of land in Europe, they heavily focused on areas where people were going to harvest herbs to make medicines or to make beer or specific foods that were very healthy. And then they started charging a tax for everyone who wanted to go and harvest these herbs. And yarrow was one of them, but also mugwort, henbane all these other herbs there is a herbal medicinal tradition everywhere and yarrow is one of these plants that there's a variety just anywhere in the world like i'm sure that i could find i'm sure that i i could without having ever been to like peru before i bet i could go and find yarrow in peru but it grows in europe north america central and south america and it's super good for you it makes a very kind of mild but sweet like delicious tea and it's also very good for if you have uh, gut issues. Anyways, I'm going to hop off. I see Nivek is in the, the queue again. I'll keep listening. Thanks for hosting this. Yeah. Party.
Hey, before before you go, have you ever tried horchata de morro down there? Uh, the, the, I don't the think so. It's pretty good. I don't I, know if it has any health benefits, but it makes me feel great every time I drink it, and I'm like hooked on. I love this stuff. It has a really earthy flavor. It's a, from a morro seed. They add morro seed to it. M O R R O. I'll drop that in there, and then uh, I'll go ahead and take Nivik right now. What's up, Nivik? Can you hear me? Can do, yeah, coming in loud and clear. Roger I was just referring, I was, just, was, was, was um, referring to his stomach issue. I know that gluten is hard to break down in the intestine. It's it's hard to break down in general. Uh, and um, so, like, if you if you eat foods with gluten and you, uh, you eat fl- uh, foods that have flour in it, um, it's good to eat it with meat. Because um, that would trigger uh, the, the digestive process of, of, of acid, and that would help break down the gluten. So you break it down in your stomach by eating fatty foods that would trigger uh, acidic, you know, acid to stomach acid to. Uh, to digest the food and and that, so the process of breaking down the meat you add the gluten to that process and where when it goes into the intestines it's not going to small intestines it's not going to uh wear down your your stomach lining because it's hard to break down and uh maybe that might help his irritable bowel syndrome that's, that's interesting. interesting i don't know if he's there oh he's gone Oh, yeah, he's there. Yeah, he's still in the call uh, or in the, in the lineup. That, that's all. Um, well, I appreciate you, man. And I will be sure to do a longevity podcast in the future for you and make sure you guys get a good heads up for that. So you can call in when I do that and ask any questions you might have. And I'm just dropping the last comment right here for Drew. <laughs> and yeah, I was going to say to Drew, I've got a really strong gut microbiome. If you ever need, if you ever need help or anything like that, I'm happy to volunteer pro bono. Got a very strong gut. I, I rarely get sick. If I do, it doesn't last for longer than a few hours, about six hours and I'm over it. So I have a historically strong uh, microbiome. If anyone needs to take advantage of that, happy to help pro bono. But this has been a really cool conversation. You guys are awesome. Um, Andrew, I really appreciate all that, appreciate all that cool input you have. You're uh, an encyclopedia, human encyclopedia of scientific information. I totally dig it. So I'll be sure to give you a heads up next time I do one of these. And again, thanks to everyone. And don't hesitate. Don't be afraid to drop any suggestions you have for a topic you'd like me to do a deeper dive on. I will happily make it happen. So you guys stay cool and uh, enjoy your week. I look forward to seeing you all next time. Take care. Hope everyone learns something.